I got to tell you, I absolutely love, love that song. I love all the hymns that we sang tonight. And there's a little bit of a danger, I think, when it comes to Christmas and hymns, and for that matter, to the Christmas story itself. And it is that we become overly familiar with it. And so we come through the Christmas season. If you've grown up like I have, you've been through 49 of them now. And, you know, it gets to the point where at some point, if you're not careful, it begins to lose its luster. And yet when you listen to a song like that, one of the things that you realize immediately is that that person who ever wrote that song is somebody who through, God, who through the God-given gift of imagination, and that's what that is, entered deeply into the profound, min, into the profound mysteries of Christmas and into its many wonders. It's an amazing thing. I mean, I don't know if you've thought much about your imagination, but I think it's one of the greatest gifts that God has given to humanity. If you think about what you can do with it, where you can go with it, it's a pretty remarkable thing. It allows you to go and see things with the eyes of your heart that you'll never see with the eyes of your head, to hear things, okay, that these ears will never hear, to feel things that otherwise you'd be foreclosed from, to travel places and time and space that in this body you just, you'll never get to go. And it awakens things like the Christmas story, very familiar, when we use our imagination. So I want to do that with you tonight. I want you to find your imagination. It may take a little while. I understand that. Some of us haven't used it in a while. We've lost it. You've got to go into the garage of your heart and pull it off a top shelf and dust it off and give it a shot of espresso, whatever you need to do. Wake it up and travel back with me to the little town of Bethlehem and to the cave, because that's what it was. It was a cave that served as the stable into which the Lord was born. And to help you do that tonight, I'm going to read you a rather vivid, frankly, imaginative rendering of that story. For the census, the royal family has to travel 85 miles. Joseph walks all 85, while Mary, nine months pregnant, rides side saddle on a donkey, feeling every jolt, every rut, every rock in the road. By the time that they arrive, the small hamlet of Bethlehem is swollen from an influx of travelers. The inn is packed, people feeling lucky if they were able even to negotiate a small space to sleep on the floor. And now it's late, and everyone is asleep and there is no room. But fortunately, the innkeeper is not all shekels and mites. True, his stable is crowded with his guest animals, but if they could just squeeze out a little privacy there, well, in the stable, they were welcome to it. Joseph looks over at Mary, whose attention is concentrated on fighting a contraction. We'll take it, he tells the innkeeper without hesitation. And the night is still when Joseph creaks open the stable door. As he does, a chorus of barn animals make discordant note of the unwelcome intrusion. The stench in the cave is pungent and humid. As there have not been enough hours in the day to tend the guests, let alone the livestock... A small oil lamp lent them by the innkeeper flickers to dance shadows on the wall, a disquieting place for a woman in the throes of childbirth. Far from home, far from family, far from what she had expected for her firstborn. But Mary makes no complaint. Frankly, it's just a relief to get off the donkey. And so she sits down on the floor of this cave and leans back against the wall, her feet swollen, her back aching, her contractions growing stronger and closer together. Meanwhile, Joseph's eyes dart about the stable. Not a minute to lose. Quickly, a feeding trough would have to make do for a crib. Hay would serve as a mattress. Blankets, blankets. Oh, his robe, that would do. 
And those rags hung out to dry over there would help. A gripping contraction doubles Mary over and sends Joseph racing for a bucket of water. The birth would not be easy either for the mother or for the child. For every royal privilege for this son ended at conception. A scream from Mary knifes through the calm of that holy and silent night, and Joseph returns, breathless water sloshing from the wood bucket, just in time to see the top of the baby's head push its way out into this world. Sweat pours from Mary's contorted face as Joseph, the most unlikely midwife in all Judea, rushes to her side. However, the involuntary contractions are not enough, and Mary has to push with all of her strength, almost as if God were refusing to come into the world without her help. Joseph places a garment beneath her, and with a final push and a long sigh, her labor is over, and the Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal, light skin as the pigment would take days or even weeks to surface, mucus in his ears and nostrils, wet and slippery from the amniotic fluid, the son of the Most High God umbilically tied to a lowly Jewish girl. The baby chokes and coughs, and Joseph instinctively turns him over and clears his throat, and then he cries, and Mary bears her breast and reaches for the shivering baby. She lays him on her chest. And his helpless cries subside as his tiny head bobs around on the unfamiliar terrain. This will be the first thing the infant king learns. And Mary can feel his racing heartbeat as he gropes to nurse. Deity nursing from a young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling or more profound? Meanwhile, Joseph sits exhausted silent and full of wonder, until the baby finishes and sighs, the divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds, and then, for the first time, his eyes fix on his mother's. Deity straining to focus, the light of the world squinting. Tears begin to pool in her eyes as she touches his tiny hand, and the hands that once sculpted mountain ranges cling to her finger. She looks up at Joseph, and through a watery veil, their souls touch. And he crowds closer, cheek to cheek, with his betrothed. And together they stare in awe at the baby Jesus, whose heavy eyelids begin to close, because after all, it's been a long journey, and the king is tired. And so with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity without protocol and without pretension. Where you would have expected angels, there were only flies... Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys, a few haltered cows, a nervous ball of sheep, a tethered camel, and a furtive scurry of curious barn mice. Except for Joseph, there was no one there to share Mary's pain or her joy. Yes, there were angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collared shepherds. And yes, a magnificent star shone in the sky to mark his birthplace. But only three foreigners bothered to look up and follow it. And so it is that thus in the little town of Bethlehem, on that one holy and silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. And in the few moments that I've got with you tonight, here's what I want to ask. Why? Why Christmas? You know, throughout the course of this Advent season, if you've been with us here at Rio, you know that we've been focusing, focusing on our own longings, 
So we've been coming to God with all of the ways that we long today for that same God who broke through into their real time and their real space and their real world and their real life to break through once again, but this time in ours. It's a season of longing in which we've focused on our longings. Tonight, I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to focus on the longing of God because it answers that question. And here's the longing of God that I want to focus on. His longing to live in relationship with any and all of His creatures who are, in turn, willing to live in relationship with Him. It's a desire, guys, a longing that you find all the way from the first page of the Bible all the way to the last. It's shouting out at you through God's Word. So you open the Bible to the first page. What do you find? You find a God who, in the beginning, what? Creates the heavens and the earth. And I realize that's like a detour spot for a lot of people. I really do. I know there's a lot of conversation about that, and a lot of folks kind of want to go, hey, um, okay, how did he do that? When did he do that? How many days did it take him to do that? There's a lot of discourse on that. And, of course, I have my opinions, as I'm sure you do as well. But I'm willing to admit something, and that is that I wasn't there. And I'm willing to say you weren't either. In fact, I'm willing to say that if you lined up every person that had ever lived, somehow crowded them all into this room, and we said, all right, we just brought you all here for one question, little survey, raise your hand. Who was there when God created the heavens and the earth? Like nobody raises their hand. And yet we talk about it, we think about it, we postulate about it, we argue about it like we were there and filmed the whole thing on our iPhone. What? You missed it? Well, I got it right here. No worries. Oh, that's the virgin birth. Wait, no. Here it is. We weren't there. And the other thing that I, I want to point out is the creation story itself. Because I think we come to it with questions that it isn't necessarily designed to answer. And here's what I mean by that. The story of creation that we find in the Bible in which God creates the heavens and the earth is not God's attempt to put on a white lab coat and then to deliver to us a scientific paper by which he outlines in great detail to the satisfaction of our every intellectual curiosity all of the various chemical, biological, and physical processes by which he brought about the heavens and the earth. That's not what it is. It's the opening act of a love story that reveals a heart full of longing, his heart, for relationship. So God creates the heavens and the earth, and then He creates man in His own image. Do you know what that means? It means that He creates us in such a way as to communicate to us something about Him. And so then, for example, He gives us eyes, not just so that we can see, but so that we can know that He's a God who sees. We're in His image, you see. He gives us ears, not just so that we can hear, but so that we can know that He's a God who hears. He gives us mouths, not just so that we can communicate, but to let us know that He communicates. And He gives us hearts that desire connection and relationship to let us know that He too has a heart that desires connection and relationship. He creates the man, male and female, and then what does He do? He places them into a garden and He winds the whole universe up like a clock and He retreats to the lofty heights of heaven and He kicks back on His big comfy couch and He watches us all play out the grand human drama like some kind of a reality TV show. Is that it? No. Now he puts them in the garden, and then day after day, day after day, day after day, what does he do? He walks with them in intimate, loving, unbroken relationship. But here's the deal, and it's, it's self-evident, it's, it's axiomatic, it's, it's impossible, I think, to argue with. When you walk with God, okay, well, then you follow God. Let me illustrate that. I want you to imagine that God is here right next to me, seated on a stool, 
Okay? So here's God. Here, here's Tom. Kind of hard to focus on me at this point. But God is the all-knowing God. I'm the not-very-much-knowing Tom. I mean, at least relatively speaking, I think we'd have to agree on that. God is the all-wise God. Okay, if I have wisdom, it's completely derivative. It comes from Him. It comes out of His Word. It comes out of whatever providentially arranged circumstance that He arranges for me by which I learn. All wisdom, yeah, and then me. Here is the pure God, the holy God, the one in whom there is no darkness, the one in whom there is no sin, the one in whom there is never anything untrue, the one who is entirely selfless. That's where the laughter erupts, you see, or the tears. (laughs) Look, I could keep going, but the point is, if God and Tom are walking down a path and we reach a fork in the road and God says, Tom, we need to go left, and I say, you know what, Lord, I think I'm going to go right, I don't think that anybody, rationally at least, would say, you know what, Tom, you made a good decision. Rationally, we have no trouble with this at all. We recognize, of course, we ought to do what he says because it's, there's no shot that he's ever wrong. It's better for me. It's better for everyone. But in our sinfulness, in our selfishness, in our need for immediate gratification again and again, in our passions in which we are overrun, we throw out what we know to be best to clutch at other things. And when we do, we come by it honestly, because that's exactly what happened in that garden. Our first parents walked with God until, well, they didn't. Till God said, take a left, and the woman said, I'm going to go to the right, and the man said, yeah, I'm with her. And then that was it. And what was lost? Relationship. And so what did the Lord do? Well, He rolled up the heavens like a scroll. He destroyed the earth. He said, no, forget it. I'm out. Is that it? No. Okay, well, then he wound it up like a clock, retreated to the lofty heights of heaven and said, you know what, you guys just devour each other. We'll, we'll do a little object lesson here, which we do that, but, but no. Now, when you read the story, you realize, my goodness, sin notwithstanding, selfishness notwithstanding, me rejecting him notwithstanding, again and again notwithstanding, he nevertheless desires relationship with us. And I say that because the promise that emanates from that moment in time to the Christmas story that we imagine and celebrate together tonight is that the woman who brought death to the man by inviting him into her sin will bring life to the man through the production of a supernaturally conceived child who is God himself and who has come into the world to fix our mess. But I'll tell you what, it required a whole lot more than just his birth. It required a perfect life. It required his sufferings. It required his death. And I know you're thinking, good grief, I hope you don't read me an imaginative rendering of that because the last one was a little intense. I'm not going to lie. Tom, there's no death in Christmas. Christmas is about a baby and it's about a young couple in love. And, you know, Christmas is about the promise of a new life and it's shepherds and it's angels and it's singing and it's, it's wise men and it's presents. It's all of these things. Christmas is that thing that if you have just the right plastic figurines, you can set up in your front yard, plug into your wall, and people will drive by and see it. And they'll just get all warm and fuzzy in here. Tom, no one ever takes a plastic figurine of a dead, bleeding, naked Jesus hanging on a cross, plugs that into their wall, and sticks it in their yard. No death in Christmas. Actually, there is. It's embedded in the story. 
It's as plain as day when you look at the death narrative and that of the birth. What do you have in the birth narrative? Well, you have a virgin who becomes pregnant. Now, I will grant you, that sounds nuts, doesn't it? Unless, unless the child is God, in which case it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, think about this. If God himself was going to be conceived in a human and then come forth being birthed through a human into this world as a human, would you expect a normal conception story? Would you expect then the story of a normal life? So what we have is a virgin who becomes pregnant with the Son of God himself, who then comes forth from a womb that the gospel writers say had known no man. His mother's name is Mary. His stepfather's name is Joseph. After he's born, they wrap him in swaddling clothes. What did that look like? What does that mean? Imagine this. They did what all of the parents did in those days to make it feel warm, to make him feel constricted, to make him feel like he's still inside of the womb and therefore comfortable. They would take long strips of linen and beginning with the toes, they would wrap the little feet and then they would wrap all the way up the calves and they would wrap up the thighs and they would pin the arms at the side and they would wrap all the way up to the neck. Okay, now using your imagination, what does he look like? A little mummy, doesn't he? And then they put him in a manger, which, of course, is, you know, a wood box with hay and these crisscross like No! The mangers were stone containers. They were literally chiseled out of solid stone. So they put the mummified Jesus in a stone container. It's fascinating. And then what do the wise men come bringing? Oh, and by the way, not to the manger scene. I hope that doesn't blow up Christmas for you. But they arrived like two years after. So after he's shed his linen wrappings, after he's left his stone container, here come the wise men bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh, and we know what gold is, and some are hoping for some tomorrow. We think we know what frankincense is. It must smell good. It's got the word incense. That's right. Guys, myrrh is a burial spice. It's what they used to embalm dead bodies in that day. Kind of an odd gift for a living Jesus. Then, of course, heaven's angels came, and they brought the good news to the shepherds, and they gave the shepherds a sign. Here's how you'll know when you find him. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. That is to say, he'll look like a little mummy, and and he'll be lying in a stone container. And then, of course, the Christmas story involves an actual birth. It was a supernatural conception, but it was a real birth with all of the real pains thereof, which come in waves, do they not? So it sounds like a story about life and birth, and it is, obviously. But notice what happens when you lay it next to the story of his death. Because after Jesus is crucified, a man named Joseph comes to claim his body, and then a woman named Mary is the first to discover the empty tomb, and not just that, but to actually see the risen Jesus. So two of the main characters have the same name. And after Joseph claims his body, do you know what he does? Do you know what the process is? He takes long strips of linen cloth, and starting with the toes, yeah, you got it. He wraps the feet, he wraps the calves, he, he puts the hands down by the side, he wraps up to the neck a separate shroud for the head. He mummifies him. He puts him in a grave. What, is that a hole in the ground? No, it's not a hole in the ground. It's a stone container carved literally out of solid stone. And in this case, it is a virgin stone container. It's very carefully stated that no man had lain in that particular 
container before. And then on the morning of the third day, Jesus, having shed his wrappings and come forth from the stone container, leaving the tomb empty, Mary comes to that. And what does she come bringing? Burial spices, which would have been appropriate a little earlier, but not really for a living Jesus. And the angels then announce to Mary that Jesus has come forth from the virgin tomb. And they tell her, go and tell the disciples the shepherds of God's flock. And she does, and what do they do? They run, just like the shepherds from the field, to the stone container. And how do they know they're in the right place? They see the swaddling clothes, guys. They see the strips of linen, and they walk away, leaving Mary behind, and she's, she's weeping. And if you've wept heavily in the past, you might know that it tends to come in waves, and yet... Like Mary who gave birth to Christ, her pain ended in joy when Jesus appeared, and so it is with Mary Magdalene. When the Lord reveals Himself to her, her weeping is turned to joy. And so the Christmas story is clearly a story about birth and life, but it's a lot more than that. Embedded within it is everything necessary to cure everything that stands between us and the Lord. That's what he's done. It's a story about how God, through a miraculous conception, became a man, a man for mankind, who lived the life that we have, and he made all the left turns God said to make, he made all the right turns God said to make, and he did it perfectly unlike any of us. And then at the end of 33 years, he willingly took to himself every wrong turn we've made, past, present, and future, and then offered his infinitely valuable, perfectly righteous life as the sacrifice by which to remove everything that stands between us and the God of the universe who so desperately longs for relationship with his creatures. Having suffered and died for our sin, he rose again from the dead to proclaim forgiveness and eternal life and relationship For all who believe, see, that's what the longing of God has brought about, and that's what we celebrate when it comes to Christmas. That is why in the little town of Bethlehem, that one holy and silent night, God's royal son was born. And I hope that you were able to enter into that. But more than that, I hope that enters into you. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the heart that we find on display all throughout the Bible, but most particularly in the Christmas story. Lord, how we see your Son, our Savior, born into this world to remove everything that stands between us and you. Lord, all of our sin, all of our darkness, all of our shame, all of our guilt, good grief, we have reason on a night like this to sing. Lord, I pray that you would drive us in humility to him, that we might confess our need for the forgiveness and eternal life that he brings, and that we might rise from that prayer, having put our trust in him and found that forgiveness in life through faith in that Jesus. Lord, we praise you for him. We love you and we are thankful. Amen.